Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. So back in 2020 was the last time that we dedicated an episode here on this show to carbon capture and storage. And at the time, we discussed it in terms of an emerging technology, which could become important in the future for reducing emissions. Well, perhaps now the future has come. Within the intervening period, CCS looks like it has been growing fast, with the investment in CCS having more than doubled year on year as of Q1 2023. The total capacity of projects under development as of late 2022 stood at 244 million tons per annum. That's up 44% from the year before. So which industries and sectors are driving this growth? Why are they looking at CCS in particular? And how does it compare with other carbon abatement strategies? Today's show draws from the recent BNEF Carbon Capture and Storage Market Outlook. And who better to speak with us about this topic than two members of our sustainable materials team? The head of the team, Alan Tom Abraham, alongside Anastasia Tomasidu. Together, we discuss the different industries that are utilizing carbon capture and storage technology, including oil, gas, cement, and hydrogen, and the costs involved for each, along with other hard-to-abate areas. In the show, we also get into how carbon capture is transported and stored, in addition to some of the surprising things that it can be used for. We also address the potential bottlenecks for storing CO2 and whether it could pose a threat for the expansion of CCS. And lastly, we get into the role that policy plays in the adoption of CCS technology and which countries are actively encouraging rollout with reforms and how effective they've actually been. As always, if you like this podcast, if you subscribe, you're going to receive an update when we publish future episodes. And if you give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other players, it will make us more discoverable by others. But right now, let's jump into my conversation with Alan and Anastasia about where the CCS market has gotten to since we last discussed it. Anna, thank you very much for joining today. Thank you. And Alan, good to have you on the show as well. Thank you, Dana. Very excited for this conversation. Well, I'm looking forward to it because this is one of those topics that we're revisiting because things have changed. And that's always a good thing to see technology move forward and for markets to be this kind of constantly evolving thing. We're talking about carbon capture and storage today. And my first question is a definition one, which does seem to be where I head at the beginning of many shows because there's a lot of vernacular. And one thing I've noticed was that a couple of years back, everyone was saying CCUS as opposed to CCS. Now I'm noticing CCS being back as the go-to term. Would you be able to clarify the difference between the two and essentially which term we're going to use for the remainder of our conversation today? Carbon capture and storage is what is referred to as CCS and carbon capture utilization and storage is what is referred to as CCUS. Now, the utilization part is important because a lot of companies previously thought that they could capture carbon and then use it 
for certain applications like creating synthetic fuels or any other particular applications that they would look for. But because of the maturity in policy, as well as some incentives that are coming out in certain markets which favor storage, the industry is starting to slowly shift towards storage. And that's becoming a more important part of the whole carbon capture discussion. And that's why you have rightly noticed that a lot of discussions are now focusing on CCS instead of CCUS. But both are relevant. What was the utilization part? What was it being used for in a way that was economically beneficial? Historically, most of it was used for enhancing oil production from oil wells. You capture the CO2, inject it into oil wells, and you increase the output from these oil wells. Or you could also use it for carbonation of beverages, for example, into your soda. Uh, that's also one, one particular application. Or you could use it as a greenhouse for increasing agricultural output in greenhouse versus agricultural production. So different applications, but not very scalable, I would say. It's possible I drank a soda of... CCUS captured carbon. This is something that may have happened and I didn't even realize it. Yes, if you were in the U.S. If I was in the U.S. Well, we'll come to the regional aspect of this particular technology application in a minute, but let's talk a little bit right now about why this is time for us to be talking about this. This technology has become more prevalent, more often talked about, and really in your mind, I mean, I know why we asked you to come on the show, but why do you think that there was a catalyst for you to talk about this topic and for us to revisit CCS at this time? So in the last decade, we've seen huge investment in this technology, so many new projects and so much new CCS capacity being announced. Between 2020, since we last, last had a conversation, uh, more than 40 million tons of capacity has been announced, which might sound huge, but by the end of this decade, an additional 370 million tons of CO2 capture capacity has been announced. So this has been a massive change over the last few years. This is something that we always try to look at, how fast the industry is moving, but and we try to capture it in our market outlooks. And one of the things that we started noticing when we went about writing this market outlook was two other important things that were changing. One is we, we discussed about the use of carbon dioxide and where it eventually ends. And historically, most of the carbon dioxide, like I mentioned, was used for enhanced oil recovery. About 60% of the carbon capture capacity historically used the CO2 to enhance oil recovery. But when we look into the future, 2030, 2035, we are starting to see that flip. About 75% of the carbon capture capacity is now trying to use the carbon dioxide and storing it away permanently in deep geological reserves when compared to just 25% today. So huge shift in terms of like where we are sending the carbon dioxide that we are starting to capture. And the other one is, of course, we're starting to see a divergence in terms of the geographical footprint of the projects that are starting to be announced. Historically, the U.S. has been the largest market. The U.S. continues to be the largest market, but new large projects are starting to come up in markets such as Canada, the U.K., Germany, uh, Netherlands, and even the Middle East. So that's another difference that we're starting to see when we look at the market over the last three to four years. Just to add something to what Alan has just said, another big difference is in which sectors the CCS capacity is actually being added. And historically, most of the capacity was in natural gas processing plants. But now we see lots of new investment in sectors like hydrogen and um, cement and power, especially in the US. And this uh, diversification in terms of where CCS is applied is also driving this huge capacity boom that we're seeing. 
So you mentioned that the U.S. has been and continues to be a dominant player in this space. So let's talk a little bit about the geographical split. This is a popular technology from what you're telling me in the West, but why? Why do you think that it is found predominantly in North America and in Europe? It's two reasons. One is, like I said, one of the reasons for the the dominance of the U.S. when it comes to carbon capture capacity is that the oil and gas companies in the U.S. have been at the forefront of using this technology to improve the oil output from their production facilities. And that's one of the reasons that many of the projects that were initially located were in the U.S., And is that because perhaps national oil companies are less interested, at least until this point, in directly managing their emissions with this technology? It's two ways. One is the emissions is one part of it. The other part is, of course, like how do you increase the efficiency of your oil and gas production as well and improve its output? So I would say it's a balancing of both of these different parameters. But it also looks at how some of these US-based oil and gas companies were looking at this technology as a way to understand how carbon capture works out. And there has been some historical incentives that also helped in in propping up this industry in the US and even in markets like Canada, where you used the captured carbon dioxide in order to extract more oil and it created a value stream for the captured carbon dioxide. Unfortunately, in other markets outside of North America, we did not see a value proposition for using the carbon dioxide that was captured. And that's as a result, you see very little projects that were built in other markets. And when it comes to why the US is leading, a lot of that is coming down to, again, the activity of the largest players in the market today, their understanding about the technology, and also because the Inflation Reduction Act actually came out with huge incentives that were offered to carbon capture projects over the next 10 to 12 years. So the US IRA has created financial incentives for this to do well. But before that took place, you mentioned efficiency being something that these companies, the oil and gas community, is looking for when they're looking at CCS. Is it something that helps them make money in the right circumstances, or is it always an additional cost? For the oil and gas companies, they had to pay a very small amount for getting the carbon dioxide from an an industrial facility or even their own application. So if they owned a refinery or if they owned a natural gas processing facility, they already had to remove the carbon dioxide from these processes. And as a result, you ended up adding a cost to your existing operational facility. Now you could use that carbon dioxide to increase your oil output or your gas output on the other hand, which meant you created more value by using that cost to create more revenue or profit from using that. So that was basically the balancing act that the companies were trying to achieve here. Has the emissions trading scheme in Europe, so the EU ETS, has that been a big catalyst for CCS? Like I said, the Europe has never been a big market for carbon capture and storage, except for some of the markets in the Nordic, such as Norway, where a certain carbon tax in the very early stages in the in the in the in the 90s and you know in the early 2000s started promoting a lot of carbon capture projects in in Norway. But beyond Norway, carbon capture has never been a tool that has been used effectively for emissions reduction in Europe. Let's talk a bit about prices then, because we're here talking about different schemes that make it more beneficial in certain parts of the world because the government is supporting it. What is the current cost and really what are some of our projections around where CCS might go from a pricing standpoint? 
So these are the things we have recently explored in our research, looking at the cost of capture per ton of CO2 in various different industries, some of which we've mentioned already. And the type of industry makes a huge difference because in each industry, the off gases that are emitted from which we capture the CO2 from have varying concentrations of CO2. The higher the concentration, the cheaper it is to capture it. So for high concentration sources like natural gas processing and ethanol, the costs are cheaper and they vary between 20 to 40 dollars per ton of CO2. Whereas in other sectors where concentration of CO2 is lower, like in hydrogen and cement, the costs can be as high as 80 dollars per ton, so almost double. And this is because when concentration of CO2 is lower, more energy is needed, more solvents are needed, and bigger equipment is needed to capture the same amount of uh, CO2. So let's talk about those industries where this is a really prime solution. You mentioned cement, steel. I'm hearing hard-to-abate sectors. This is one of the solutions for those parts of the economy that cannot electrify readily. What would you say are maybe the top few, top five hard-to-abate sectors where CCS is really becoming increasingly popular? There are two ways to look at it. One is based on the announced pipeline of projects from now through 2035, and the other is in sectors where it is essential to deploy CCS in order to get to net zero. So let me address it in two parts. On the first part, which is based on the announced pipeline of projects, when we look at the period from now through 2035, most of the carbon capture capacity is now targeted towards the production of hydrogen or ammonia. And again, a large portion of it located in the US. And then comes industries such as power, where again, about 19% of the capacity by 2035, based on the announced pipeline of projects, could be for capturing CO2 from coal and gas power plants in various parts of the world. Substantial number again. And the third largest category when it comes to CCS capacity by 2035 could be natural gas processing, which is the dominant use case today. So these three sectors still become one of the most important ones. But the interesting part here is that hydrogen and power were not historically big sectors for carbon capture. And they are starting to emerge as two very important sectors for carbon capture capacity by 2035. And you talked about hard to beat industries like cement and steel. These industries do require carbon capture in order to reduce emissions and to get to net zero. But when we look at the timeline between now and 2035, unfortunately, very few companies are really looking at investing in this technology in order to reduce emissions. As a result, only about 7% of the capacity by 2035 could be deployed in these two sectors. How low can CCS technology actually get the emissions coming from these sectors? I'm assuming that it does not get to zero. It does not wipe out the emissions. I'm also assuming that it varies widely depending upon the density of the carbon, as you had mentioned. So I guess the what the question I'm really asking is how good is it? How effective is it in removing carbon from carbon intensive industries? So this varies a lot. Most facilities aim for at least 90% of the CO2 to be captured. And there's some facilities that have proven to be able to capture 95%. There is interesting companies that claim that they can capture more than 99% of their emissions, but this is something that has only been tested at small scale facilities and not actually been employed in commercial plants. So it's something that we're also finding very interesting. How much can they actually capture and then can they prove that they can capture as much as they claim they can? Well, then let's talk a little bit about the different technologies that are out there. What is the dominant CCS technology? And is there a good amount of 
innovation, either from within oil and gas companies who are using CCS or actually with startups that are VC funded? Really, where's the change coming from in terms of advancement of this technology? Because it's been around for quite some time. I mean, this has been a topic that the industry within decarbonization we have discussed for many years. I guess let's start from the beginning. There's firstly three main parts of the process that we can capture CO2 from. Pre-combustion, post-combustion and oxy-combustion capture. And their names kind of reveal what this means. So pre-combustion removes CO2 from fossil fuels before the fuel is actually burned. And this has a big benefit in the sense that this gas has high partial pressures of CO2, which makes the process quite efficient. But this is hard to uh, retrofit and implement at existing facilities. Post-combustion capture happens after the fuel is, is combusted. And this is the most commonly used approach and what most of these large-scale industrial plants use now. This is very easy to retrofit to existing plants, but it's a less efficient process. And then lastly, oxyfuel combustion is when instead of air, we use a pure oxygen stream for combustion of the fuel. And this generates a nearly pure stream of CO2, which bypasses any subsequent capture processes and the cost associated with them. But how do we actually capture the CO2? How do we actually get it? So... The liquid absorption is by far the leading and most mature technology and is the only technology that has been used in large-scale commercial plants. In this technology, the CO2 is essentially dissolved in a solvent, a liquid solvent, and is then released to create this pure CO2 stream that we can capture and the solvent is regenerated. Many companies provide this technology. For example, MHI, Mitsubishi, and Shell, they provide amine-based solvents to capture CO2. And amines have been around for years as this is the benchmark technology. It's what has been traditionally used. But today, this is quite expensive. It has quite high energy requirements. It uh, spares some environmental concerns in terms of amines being leaked in the atmosphere. So there's a few companies that are working on developing new innovative solutions, solvents with different chemistries that don't rely on amines at all, but also completely different approaches like solid adsorption, where the CO2 is trapped in the pores of very highly porous materials or things like membrane capture. And by quite expensive. Put that in nominal terms for me. So as we talked about earlier, this varies so much depending on the concentration of CO2 in the off gases. And it can vary from around $40 per ton of CO2 to $80 per ton of CO2. But as mentioned, the energy requirements for these plants are huge. Is there more to add? Are there more technology advancements that are quite different, technically speaking, from the one you just outlined? So other than what I just talked about, so uh, developing different new, more efficient solvents, new sorbents, solid sorbents and membranes, many companies are working on the equipment itself and how the process works. And many companies are now looking at creating modular solutions, which makes capital expenditure much lower. They can create these standardized uh, solutions that also leads to economies of scale, so they can reduce the cost a lot. Many companies are looking at implementing kit integration and recovery in their systems to lower these huge energy requirements that we talked about. These are some of the things they're, they're working on. Also, simpler things like the arrangement of the equipment, how the solid adsorbents are packed in the equipment that's being used. Just lots, lots is going on. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. 
and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So we're talking an awful lot about the capture technology, but I want to pivot a little bit to talking about what happens after we have all this carbon. So if it's not going into my next soda, where is it being stored and what are we actually doing with it to make sure that it doesn't go back into the atmosphere? Very good question. Thankfully, if it's in soda, it ends up in human beings. But otherwise, what generally used to happen is it used to be used for enhanced oil recovery. And as I mentioned, most of the capacity that's expected to come in the next 10 to 15 years is actually now pivoting towards storing this carbon for long periods of time in deep geological reserves. It can be saline aquifers or depleted oil and gas reserves, about 75% of the capacity, as I mentioned. Now, the big question there is whether we have the infrastructure to ensure that the CO2 that is captured in these industrial facilities get transported and the storage facilities and the transport infrastructure is available. And that becomes another important aspect when we think about carbon capture. How is it transported? Is it put on trucks, trains, pipelines? It can be done on any of these, but typically most of them target to use pipelines, large pipelines where you compress the carbon dioxide into a fluidic state and then push it along these pipelines into storage wells, which are either within land boundaries or even offshore. And it depends on the strategy from a company's perspective, as well as you know what different countries have in mind when it comes to how to address the CO2 that is being captured. We're putting it into the ground. Are there specific geological conditions which must be required in order to be able to store it? Or is it really just up to having the space from a land use standpoint in order to put it somewhere? Typically, the best places to park your CO2 is deep geological reserves like saline aquifers, which are either found within land boundaries or even offshore. Now, what I mentioned when it comes to how different countries are looking at it differently is that most of the capacity that is proposed, say in the US, looks at storing carbon dioxide within the land boundaries onshore. But when you come to Europe, there's a slightly different approach where most countries like Germany, for example, do not want carbon dioxide to be stored within their land boundaries. And as a result, they want to push it outside deep offshore into depleted oil and gas reserves or even saline aquifers, which are offshore. So that becomes a different approach in how different countries identify where they want to store the carbon dioxide that's captured. How do we ensure that it stays where it's being stored? 
That's a very good question and that's something that the industry is starting to like figure out in how do we ensure and monitor and verify that the carbon dioxide that we inject into these wells stay there for long. It depends on the specific geology in some certain cases, but overall companies are starting to use technology, AI and the deep machine learning as well as digital expertise that many of these oil and gas companies have developed over the last few years to understand how the geology in these wells work and how it behaves as you inject more carbon dioxide into these wells and they are starting to put up new technology which will continuously measure if what they're trying to achieve is being achieved in terms of keeping that carbon dioxide in there for long periods of time so you referenced the transportation and storage is a bit tricky how tricky is this how well, actually, to put it another way, we were talking earlier about technology advancements in terms of the actual capture technology. Are there a lot of eyes on trying to solve this transportation and storage question? And, you know, I'm just sitting here having a moment also thinking about the fact that we recently did a show on grids and how incredibly underinvested and important they are for that sector. So I can only imagine that this has a similar parallel. Absolutely, you're right on that. You can draw a parallel to this because transportation and storage is now looking like one of those factors that can be the biggest bottlenecks for this industry to scale. Again, in our market outlook, we try to track what is the announced capacity of transport and storage facilities that is being rolled out over the next 10 to 15 years. And what we see is that for the 420 million tons of carbon capture capacity that could be online by 2035, only about 250 million tons of transport and storage infrastructure is being proposed by the same period of time. So only about half of the captured carbon can be transported or stored based on the announced transport and storage infrastructure by 2035, which means this is going to be one of the biggest bottlenecks for the carbon capture facilities to scale. All these industries can capture carbon, but they don't know what to do with it. Transporting anything over a distance is going to require permitting and a view on environmental impact in local communities. Not only, well, there's two questions within this. How difficult is it to get these permits? And then ultimately, how long does it take to build some of these projects? It is certainly turning out to be very difficult to get these new permits. Let me give you an example. Some of the projects that companies such as Summit Carbon Solutions or Navigator CO2 Ventures have now proposed in the US, which is by far the most mature market when it comes to carbon capture solutions, are now facing huge permitting delays because the initial applications that they submitted with states in the Midwest, such as North Dakota or South Dakota, were initially declined. And many of these companies like Navigator CO2 Ventures are now saying these projects are on hold and we are now going to revisit the entire project and see where we can find other alternative paths to make these projects happen. So it is becoming a big hassle to build these pipelines and get the permits for these pipelines. And these are long infrastructure projects, long duration infrastructure projects. We can take six, seven years sometimes in the making to build over thousands and thousands of miles. I've got two questions. One is near term and one is long term. But let's start with the nearer term. And by nearer term, I mean, let's say the next decade or so. How critical is this technology to the future of a net zero world when it comes to the oil and gas industry? Or in some of the hard to abate sectors that you also outlined that really rely on this technology to bring their emissions down? So this decade has a huge impact on the long term. So let's talk about both. In our net zero scenario, as we said, 
previously, in this decade, we expect carbon capture capacity to grow to around 420 million tons, which is a huge number. But in our net zero scenario, this number for 2030 is 1,750 million tons. That's 1.75 billion tons of CO2 that we need in our net zero scenario by 2030. So as this makes it obvious that the announced projects are far behind what we need to see to 2030 to reach net zero. And we're talking about 2030, but what about 2050? So in 20 years time, by 2050, in our net zero scenario, we expect CCS to contribute about 10% of emissions abatement in power, 21% in steel, and a huge 75% in cement, which translates to about 7.5 billion tons of CO2 being captured to 2050 in order for us to reach net zero. So going back to your question, we think it's going to be a massive contributor to being able to reduce our emissions in various different sectors. And for those who aren't familiar with the net zero scenario coming from BNF, it's part of our new energy outlook where we essentially start with the end in mind. And we say, if we want to reach net zero as a planet by 2050, what is it going to take for the different sectors that we cover in order for it to get there? And needless to say, there is a speed and scale discussion in the immediate term. I have a follow on question, though, when it comes to this, which is we know what it is that we need to do. But for those who are in businesses and looking at investing in technologies and large infrastructure projects, they want to make sure that these projects are going to continue to make money for them for a long period of time. The parallel I can think of is natural gas. If you're going to build a new gas-fired power station, you want to know that you're going to be able to actually use it. And in some circumstances, the policy environment does not necessarily make that particular project favorable, even if it has a short-term benefit from a carbon emission standpoint. So as we enter a phase where we're talking increasingly about oil demand dropping off, and we may have actually already reached peak oil demand, in the oil and gas industry and the application of CCS, do we have a feel for whether or not there's cause to be concerned on the CCS side of the business or even in the transportation and storage end of things? Not having a long-term viable future for these technologies in the hypothetical world where we actually do decarbonize at the speed that we need to in order to reach net zero. There are some industries which even in the long term do not have many pathways to completely face out the use of fossil fuels. And one of them is the petrochemicals industry, for example. The world is developing, population is rising, people are dependent more and more on consuming plastics, for example, or any other chemicals that are produced from the petrochemicals industry. And all of this petrochemicals industry would require some fossil fuel feedstock, which when it goes through the process in the petrochemical refineries, produces emissions. And you need to capture those emissions. And as a result, there is a stream of opportunity for carbon capture in that industry, for example. Similarly, for cement, the world is going to build more buildings, especially in the developing world. And we need cement to build the roads, the buildings, everything in these places. And cement has a particular feature in that the process involves creating about 50 to 60% of the emissions and not just the fuel that is burned in the manufacture of cement. So even if we, in a hypothetical world, entirely switch out the fuels in a cement manufacturing facility with clean fuels, you still end up having about 50 to 60% of CO2 emissions from the process which needs to be captured. So there are these sectors which would still rely on CCS as a technology to 
abate their emissions in a net zero world and that is what is is the stream that will help develop some of these transport and storage infrastructure remain viable as well as all the investments that's going into this space that really helped me think about the future for this industry because i know that it's increasingly complex as we talk about in this room but there does seem to be when i look at the net zero scenario you see certain industries drop off at certain points in the future assuming that things actually do follow that trajectory. And again, it's a scenario, not a forecast. Those are very different things. But the number of industries that CCS is applicable to, it's interesting and illuminating for me with you guys here on the show. Let's talk a little bit then about the policymakers who also see this solution, in particular, as we've established in the West. And there are two ways to go about policy intervention with technology and and uh, carbon. There's carrot and there's stick. Who's doing the carrot and who's doing the stick? And what are we seeing in the policy space that's making CCS an increasingly viable carbon emissions technology? So we talked already about many of these new growth being in the U.S. And there's a reason for it. And it's the Inflation Reduction Act, which has made the U.S. be um, a leader in this technology. Which is definitely a carrot. 100%. So last year we saw the updates in the 45Q credits, which now give companies that are able to start construction of these carbon capture facilities by 2032, $85 per ton of CO2 that they store, or $60 per ton of CO2 that they utilize, which as Alan talked about before, can be enhancing oil recovery, using in synthetic fuels and different things like that. And this can cover some of the costs that we talked about earlier, especially for high concentration sources, where the capture costs are lower than the benefit these credits provide. So they can really make carbon capture economically viable business case. And this also explains why 65% of the new capture capacity that we see, especially in hydrogen, is in the US. Also, this kind of deadline to 2032 is really pushing for projects to happen now because we talked about how long it takes for some of these projects to be implemented and how long permitting takes and all of that. So for a project to start construction in less than a 10 years time, some of these things have to be initiated now. Other countries giving carrots, Canada providing huge capex support and providing up to 50% of point source carbon capture project capital expenditure. And again, as we talked about earlier, capital costs is the single largest cost component of this project and the initial investment that these companies have to make is huge. And for, for industry, this ranges from around $170 million to more than a billion dollars, which makes the importance of this support obvious. And then coming back to the UK, the country has put on the side 20 billion pounds to support carbon capture projects for the decarbonization of especially uh, industrial hubs. So I think these three are the main ones in terms of carrots. So it seems that carrots is the approach to go for most of these countries. I don't have many good examples for sticks, but it will be interesting to see how that goes. My last question, which is really a burning question I've had since we've been going through this, is that if it really is this incredible use case to bring down emissions right now in the oil and gas industry, which are creating a large number of emissions, what is it going to take for this technology to be useful in other parts of the world, perhaps where there are national oil companies who don't have the same market-based incentives through their share price to be looking at things like this? What would be the right environment for CCS to be all over the world? The one thing we need to realize is CO2 is a waste and capturing that CO2 is going to cost more. 
be it an oil and gas company or a cement factory or a steel factory, carbon capture is an additional cost and as a result, governments would have to either provide incentives to support the deployment or on the other hand, put a very high carbon tax. So one of these two would have to happen. As we scale this technology, costs are likely to come down some. Do you think that that will end up helping? For most of the industrial applications, carbon capture is a mature technology as we as we discussed previously. And as a result, the amount of reduction in cost is going to also be fairly limited compared to some of the technologies that we've seen like solar, wind or batteries. What we could see is for point source carbon capture in industrial sources, cost could fall by about 40 to 50 percent over the next two to three decades. So that's not substantial. It's good, but it's not substantial. And as a result, it's going to be a cost and it's going to help, but you still need incentives to make this happen. Okay. Well, on that note, thank you very much for walking me through the future of the application of this well-established technology, which looks like it has an increasingly interesting future. Alan, Anna, thank you very much for joining today. Thank you, Dana. Good to be here. Thank you, Dana. Thank you for having me. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.